The Incomparable Number 197 June 2014 Welcome back to The Incomparable Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Snell. We're here to talk about a book, but this is a little bit different from our normal book club. This is a work of nonfiction, but it's by somebody who is a major player in a major creative endeavor and one that we podcasted about before and that we love a lot, which is Pixar. We're going to talk about Creativity, Inc., a book by Ed Catmull with Amy Wallace. Ed Catmull, the president of Pixar for many years and now runs the uh, both Pixar and Walt Disney Animation with John Lasseter. Uh, and he wrote this book that is partially a memoir of his time at Pixar and partially a management book about how he has managed the creative culture at Pixar, which I think is an interesting conversation to have too. And there are lots of things to talk about. I have a panel full of people who are raring to go to talk about this subject. I feel, I love it as a host when that happens because I feel like I can just sort of lean back and I'll go get a glass of water at one point and you won't even know I'm gone because <laughs> anyway, uh, my panelists are Glenn Fleischman. Welcome back, Glenn. Nice to see you finally. It's, it's such a pleasure to have broken the surface of the water tension and come through, uh, uh, like Nemo, I, I found myself. Okay, that's a reference. Uh, Lisa Schmeiser also here. Hello. Thank you. It's nice to be here. John Syracusa is here. So excited to be on a book club episode, uh, even if it is nonfiction and even if it's not an 800 page book about wizards. By my, by my, uh, <laughs> by my reckoning, it has been approximately 16 months since you were on a book club episode. Whoa. So, welcome. And David Lore, who is on every episode that Dan Morin isn't on, and many that he is, is also here. Hello. Hi. Uh, all, all I will say is I'm glad this isn't about the Hugo nominees. Yeah. Because that was not going to happen. No. Well, no. <laughs> David just records continuously 24 hours a day, I believe. Radio, radio free David. <laughs> It's aware, you know, there's so many different facets of this. Um, I don't, I'm not sure where you want to get started. I really enjoyed it on one level, I have to say, just as being the story of Pixar and this interesting story of Ed Catmull, who started out in computer science, um, but always had creative yearnings as well, and ended up sort of by mistake or just through happenstance at, uh, at, at Lucasfilm when they were starting their computer graphics division and then the story of them being bought by Steve Jobs and the desire to uh make a a, ma a motion picture in computer animation and then the tr sort of tribulations of uh the problems they had with various um various films the Disney buyout mm -hmm. And the death of Steve Jobs are all covered in here. So he's got that aspect of the story as well as the the sort of management learnings over the course of all this time, you know, which I found very interesting. But I was fascinated just by the story of Pixar. I, I um, The thing that really hit me was that at a time when they could have very easily have just said, we're going to make hardware or we're going to make software or, you know, we're going to do computer graphics for other people's movies. They had this one idea, which I think came from John Lasseter, but Ed Catmull was right there with him, which is we're going to make a motion picture. And and that the world would be very different if they hadn't had that, because you get the sense from the book that it would have been very easy. It was not a fait accompli that they were going to be a movie studio. They, they became a movie studio, not accidentally, but it was not um, looking at Pixar in the 
in the uh, 80s and early 90s, you wouldn't have made that guess, I think, I would say. They had they needed somebody who was going to pour hundreds of millions of dollars down a hole, hoping eventually that was going to become a foundation. <clears throat> and that's what Steve Jobs did. I mean, after you know Lucas's years with it, uh, and they thought they were a hardware business that was going to maybe do something on the side – if they hadn't poured hundreds of millions of dollars in research from you know this really not exactly benign but certainly supportive ongoing you know leader uh, with big pockets, um, it wouldn't have happened. And uh, you know I'll, I'll tell you this isn't Glenning, but um, I knew a bunch of computer graphics people in the in the uh, 80s and 90s. People were involved in SIGGRAPH, and uh, one was the chair. In '86, and you know, my old uh, housemate was a was a was computer graphics guy. So I met a lot of these kind of people, like Ed. And it is there's a personality type because I'm reading this, and I'm like, oh, I I remember the kind of person that gets into this field. The patience you need because you leave, you go insane, and you leave. Um, the glenning part is we had when I worked at the Kodak Center for Creative Imaging, we had a Pixar box. They had bought one, the Cube, and it sat there, and none of us knew how to do anything with it. And occasionally, I would try to plug in component video monitors to it and get it to do anything at all. And we had no idea what to do with it. I had uh, Typestry, um, and, and I still, I think, I may even have the discs somewhere. Typestry for the Mac, which was three mm. uh, D rendered type app for the Mac from like 1993 or something like that when they were a software company which based on the book um they realized that they weren't going to really be a hardware company so yeah. they had to try something else the things that this company did in its time in the wilderness uh, in, in, in retrospect it's it's kind of obvious what the problem was because like in the beginning they were a lucas thing and lucas had something that he wanted them to do which is revolutionize you know film editing and filmmaking which they did to the best of their ability and it turns out that they were ahead of their time and whatever and lucas lucas stitched them and then they went to steve jobs and what does steve jobs know how to do he knows how to make computers and software uh in various combinations and they tried to do that for a while and on the only time that they found success is when they said all right what do you guys want to do and it turned out of the people who remained or the people who were there <laughs> and the people who were important they said actually uh we we you know catmulls wanted to make we've always wanted to make films yeah right and when you let them do that i mean i'm not it's not saying that was guaranteed success but previously they had all been in the mindset of like underneath some other master, do what Lucas wants, do what Steve Jobs knows how to do and get acquired by like GM or somebody who makes dishwashers or whatever. But then it's like, what do you guys want to do? And that's how they started off on their actual road. So in, in hindsight, it's so easy to see all those previous endeavors. Well, of course they weren't going to succeed because, you know, the people, the people who were there and the people in charge didn't have their heart in those things. What I wonder, what I wonder is if anybody's going to look at this and say, wow, it took them nearly 20 years to get to the point where they became a movie studio. Sometimes it's worth throwing money at something because you build a foundation, you, you build a tight working team, you build a foundation of knowledge, you build a management style that works, and you've got raw material. All you need is, is a crystallizing sense of purpose. Because um, the question I have is if a company like Pixar could happen today with the sort of insane pressure, the overheated pressure that happened, that, that that seems to be a matter, of course, for tech and tech adjacent industries, where you're supposed to uh, hit the ground running within 18 to 24 months and then and then grow from there. And, and, and could, could a Pixar happen today? Well, coming out of um, Lucas like it did, um, 
it was almost like you're you're talking about a research division of a company and not yeah. a startup, right? The, this was we collected a bunch of brilliant people who know about computer graphics. And to George Lucas's credit, when Star Wars movies are being made with models, he's thinking ahead and saying, you know, computer graphics is going to be a thing. We gotta we gotta get something you know in there, and we're going to try this. And Steve Jobs, you know, sort of had the same thing, which is I think there's something here, and these people are really smart, but I'm not quite sure what it is yet. And it was much more like funding an R and D lab where they're like, well, we're going to try some hardware. We're going to make some software. Um, if you take those products out and say, guys, just stop making products, just think about stuff. But they said the products were sort of part of their exploration and they end yeah. up in a place where, where uh, something catches, but you're right, Lisa, you know, this is not the kind of thing that you just say, we're going to do a startup and make a thing. Unless you're, a, unless you're like Elon Musk and you've got a billion dollars kicking around, you, re, you really, you know, this is more like R and D where you've got somebody to fund, to bankroll something and just say, but get some smart people, um, let them kick around for a few years and make a bunch of mistakes, and they will eventually get somewhere really interesting because, you know, without at any point, this could have fallen apart. Well, and that's where they didn't wake up to that for a while is that they weren't a re- – when they became a self-standing company, they didn't quite realize that they weren't an R&D company for a long time. They were sort of trying to figure out where the revenue was. They didn't really get it. They tried different things. They rejected a bunch of stuff. But they still sort of acted like they were part of some other firm. Like we will be – well, we'll provide the rendering stuff for these other companies even though there weren't really companies who wanted it and what they were creating didn't really work for that purpose. Well, what was funny reading the first part of the book – for me was um, the other day I found this out of nowhere, a Japanese proverb on the inside of an honest tea bottle cap that said, vision without action is a daydream, but action without vision is a nightmare. <laughs> and at, and the whole time I'm reading the first part of the book, I'm, I'm thinking he's going to say that. Oh my God, that's exactly what he's talking about. Well, there's the, one of the, one of the first quotes I pull, I, I highlighted when I read this, um, where Catmull's talking about some of the really bad non-advice he received from his friends and contemporary. So, um, he singles out one focus. I'm going to quote here, focus, focus, focus. This was a particular favorite piece of non-advice. When people hear it, they nod their heads in agreement as if a great truth has been presented, not realizing that they've been diverted from addressing the far harder problem, deciding what it is they should be focusing on. There's nothing in this advice that gives you any idea how to figure out where the focus should be or how to apply your energy to it. And I thought that was just a really elegant distillation of, um, it was, I thought it was a very elegant, elegant critique of, of what Dan is talking about, which is, uh, you know, action without purpose or, or action without uh, inspiration or, fo- or, 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 or intent behind it. I'm not Dan. Oh, Dave, I'm sorry. Oh, gosh. I'm so <laughs> sorry. It's the, it's, it's, I'm so, so sorry. <clears throat> Just say D. Oh. What was, it was really neat um, reading about the um, drawing lessons and how we can't see – we can't draw the chair because we see the chair – but we're more accurate when we draw the negative space in and around the chair. And, and that to me is everything about focus because that, that makes you look at the things you don't already know, which is much more, much more worthwhile when you're trying to be creative and and you don't know where an idea is going to come from. And I mean, that happens to me all the time where I'll start something and throw out the first two or three story ideas because the third one was really, really good. And I had no idea this character was going to do that. So, so yeah, I mean, I mean the whole book just, well, anyway, Well, that seems to be the, when he talks about the mental models and the metaphors that people use, um, yeah. Catmull had the real issue with people referring to excavation and archeology. Cause he said, look, it's not like the movie was there 
and we groped toward it, you know, I don't think he's a guy who's really into the allegory of the cave. Like he doesn't strike me as a platonic guy that way. <laughs> Cause he's like, it's not like this ideal movies out there. And we grew up toward, toward it. It's an iterative process. We're not uncovering anything. We're not really archeologists of, of, of ideas. And um, that's something he returns to over and over again is, is you really have no idea what some of the problems that you're facing are. You have no idea what you don't know. You have to train yourself to look at every situation without bringing context to it you have to you have to find new ways to approach it and i thought that was just a really really smart insight to keep hammering on over and over again was was the idea that if you want to be creative start by stripping away the context and and just and and just try to see what you're not try try to see things from a different perspective as a collection of shapes or as this shoe that's upside down I thought underlaying a lot of this book, too, is something that's understated. And now I have to admit, I've never read uh, Clayton Christensen's uh, book, The Innovator's Dilemma. I feel like I have because I've read so many articles and excerpts uh, that involve it. Um, but, uh, but you know, the so it's ridiculous. I should actually need to sit down and read the thing. But I, and I've read interviews with him and lengthy things and watched and talked about it and, and whatever. So I feel like I'm conversant in the theory. Uh, and The Innovator's Dilemma is the idea, you know, one part of it is that these entrenched industries like Disney, in this case, Disney, what it became uh, – um, they figure out one thing that works. They own a whole space, and um, you know, it gets applied to. I mean, in computers and steel manufacturing, whatever. They uh, plucky upstarts come who do what seems to be really crappy work originally, but what they're so cheap and they're so good at the worst thing or the lowest profit, lowest margin thing that an industry or a company does that they eat that part up and they're like, oh, they can have that terrible part. We don't like that anyway. We don't make much money off it. But they grow from that base and they absorb and take over the whole industry or, or displace a company. And I feel like, you know, the Pixar story actually has a lot of that in it, not just from what Pixar did to animation, which is exactly that, as they started doing something that everyone thought was laughable and then became dominant because they developed the technology to make it work. But the other part is that he constantly reevaluates uh, whether or not what they're doing makes any sense. So he, he tries to fight complacency because he worries they're going to be that company at the top that doesn't realize they're about to be eaten from, from all their competition from the bottom and be destroyed. And coming back and forth, going uh, over that again and again and again seems to be one of the lessons of the book. We, you mentioned a little bit this dichotomy almost between um, the technical and the creative, and that was something that struck me about it is you've got this incredibly talented group of computer scientists here, and yet um, I kind of feel like the thing that they were most innovative about was this having a structure that gets good storytelling, <laughs> Not, and that the storytelling – innovation of having their brain trust and and being really functional um when and 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 disciplined when it came to building stories and going through scenes was the, is the thing that makes Pixar the 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 studio that creates these amazing stories that are classics not the technology i mean they couldn't have been the first computer animated uh, film without the technology that they had, this amazing technology. But if that story hadn't been good, and if the success of stories hadn't been good, it would have been all for nothing. And and so that's a fascinating mixture, that this isn't a, just a story about them building amazing technology and believing in their technology. It's also a story about, you know, their... Um, uh, these very technical people finding creative people who are good matches and putting them together and having this process for storytelling that was just as functional as the obviously amazing technology that they had. 
I thought it was really fascinating how Up evolved over the course of the movie, where if you read about all the different plots they had going at one point, and, um, you know, basically the only thing that stayed the whole time was uh, Carl. Uh, but um, I, I even forget some of the, I'm sorry, it's, 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 there was a lot in the book I, I absorbed and took notes on, this is not one of them, but I, uh, Finding Nemo went through several iterations too, where originally it was supposed to be a parallel story of Nemo and his tank and his dad in the wild, and they figured out the story structure was confusing, scrapped it and started over. Um, they talk about Toy Story 2, how, how they had to do it too, and I thought it was really helpful for him to hammer over and over again that, look, we were not afraid to make mistakes. It's an iterative process. No one is ever punished for failing. It's better to fail and learn from it and to assess it and do something well than to be afraid to, to try anything and then turn to mediocrity, especially because he contrasts the, the Disney process at the end. And after um, Disney bought Pixar and he, he got brought, and he and John Lasseter got brought in to, to run the Disney animation studio and they were working on the movie about the dog and it wasn't working and people were afraid to speak up and say anything because if you, if you had done that in the old corporate culture, it was sticking your neck out and it was taking, it was considered taking a risk and it was better just to put your head down and keep working and, and, and be risk averse. And he's like, no, no, you've really got to embrace risk and you've got to embrace failure because if, if you don't, if you don't try things, you're never going to learn from them and find the best way to do anything. And we do live in a pretty risk averse cult. I don't know about you guys. I've worked in some fairly risk averse places and it's, it's, it's always, it's always interesting to me to read and hear examples that, that can, that prove exactly the opposite. I loved um, Andrew Stanton's uh, Andrew Stanton's line, which is "Fail fast. You should fail and just go and just go for it and do it and fa- find quickly whether you're going to fail or not. Don't you know? Don't soft pedal it. Fail and fail fast." It took them a while to get to that, though. That's one of the themes of the book is they think they're like, well, we should give a lot of time for this. We did this for this movie and it worked out well. And then, they, then he says the thing – I mean he's so ridiculously honest in this without being shaming. Nobody is shamed in this book. I mean he doesn't – he's like we had to fire that director. We had to replace that director and so-and-so and so-and-so came on. We had a well-known and regarded children's book author come in and we couldn't work with it. I mean like over and over, the people where there's a problem, he does not point the finger and say we had so-and-so and like literally the name – of that person. Um, but, but the fact that he's so blunt about that, like every time I keep, I kept being surprised because he doesn't even fall into complacency in the book in that he just seems to call it. It's like, we thought we had this figured out. We figured we're on in these, like, then I asked and like, Oh my God, we need to have an entire, like late in the book, spoilers. They do that whole company <laughs> notes day where they essentially, I mean, they spend weeks preparing for it. They shut the company down for a day, which, I'm sure it costs millions of dollars in terms of, you know, the projects they have going and, but they reformed the company. They took something that was working and said, it's not working well enough. And I'm sure this will come out from many of our conversations here, but I thought like Ed Catmull is, he's like, seems to be, if this portrayal of himself in the book is anything, he's like the most conscientious, but relaxed guy. He's the guy you go to when you are totally freaking out and he doesn't, just excuse it. He makes, he figures it out. He's like a guru practically doesn't paint himself that way. And a perfect foil to the Steve, Steve jobs, hot mentality. The code code Catmull is cold, but emotional and sensitive. Steve jobs was hot and they seem like such a perfect compliment, but also 
uh, Catmull does exactly what Jobs does, what we read Jobs does. And he's just telling us here we're so much about what Steve Jobs did. We had to infer or read, you know, leaks and things like that. Catmull just says, oh, yeah, we did this crazy thing because we needed to reinvent everything we were doing suddenly. Yeah, and uh, you got to throw John Lasseter in there too, who's uh, you know the other piece of this, the this 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 creative force, and it's a fascinating match of Jobs and Catmull and Lasseter, and you know you've got to you've got to think that a lot of the success Pixar has had is uh, being fortunate enough to have those people in in positions of of authority in that company and as as leaders. Well, I forget because Catmull seemed to isolate. John Lasseter doesn't seem to come up in the in not power struggles when stuff really is being pulled apart, like Taffy. Catmull talks about his conversation directly with Jobs. So Lasseter, I think, brought such. I mean, the creative stuff. Like it's odd that Catmull talks so much about fostering the creative process without being someone who himself is, you know, an artist. I mean, he is at a level, but not in this way. Time for a brief break for one of our sponsors. It's Lynda.com. And this is going to be a sponsor read with a special appearance by John Syracuse in it, in an anecdote. So stay tuned for that. Lynda.com is a place to help you learn and keep up to date with software, pick up brand new skills, explore new hobbies with easy to follow video tutorials. That is the killer feature at Lynda.com. You are learning about lots of tech topics from the beginner level to the super advanced level, but you're doing it with professionally produced, high-quality video tutorials from the experts. Using the latest online tools, learning skills to increase your productivity, editing your own video footage, building websites, programming, all of these things are available in the huge, more than 2,400 courses available at lynda.com. Lindic.com works directly with software companies to provide timely training on the latest versions of their products, often the day that those versions come out. So you get a new version of your favorite professional app, and you're wondering, how do I take advantage of the new features? Guess what? Lynda.com probably has training for that app on the day that you get the software. And like I said, you can be a beginner or a super advanced user, there are courses for all of the different experience levels. And there's one low monthly price. $25 a month gives you unlimited access. You can watch as many videos in the library as you want, as many times as you want. There's no nickel and diming. There's one subscription price, $25 a month, and you get everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything. Microsoft Office, Adobe Creative Cloud, Final Cut Pro, Logic Pro, and more, Mac, Windows, iPad for business, Google Docs and Google Sheets, Keynote 6, there are so many. And here's my John Syracuse story. The incomparable.com is a website that I built the front end of myself, and I'm not much of a web designer, and I certainly haven't designed a lot of websites since the 20th century, probably. And uh, I was talking to John Syracuse this week, and, and he said, it shows. <laughs> Which, like, Well, it's true, it does, and he is not one to mince words. Uh, but however, I will say this, I was proud of myself. I made it responsive. It actually does some things differently if you're on an iPad or an iPhone or if you have a small browser window. It was my first time ever doing that. And it turns out lynda.com has responsive design courses. So you can learn from the experts about how to do something like make your website responsive to smaller devices and behave differently on mobile than it does on the desktop. And that's what I did. So that was pretty cool. Now, John Syracuse, being a web professional, was not impressed. But like I said, every skill level, including mine, can be serviced at lynda.com. So improve your skills, learn new software, keep up with new technology, 
all the courses are incredibly high quality. This is not somebody in their basement on YouTube making a hostage video. These are super high quality in a professional studio with experts explaining things in bite-sized pieces. The navigation is really easy. It's really amazing. You should see it for yourself. And I've got good news there. We have a sweet deal for you. Lynda.com is going to provide you with a special offer to access the whole library free. All of it. Not just the intros, not just some of the courses, all the courses. Free for seven days. Here's what you need to do. Visit lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash incomparable to start your seven-day free trial. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash incomparable. And thank you so much to the good people at lynda.com for teaching me some things about responsive design, despite John Syracuse and not being impressed, and for supporting The Incomparable. Going back to story, the thing that, that struck me, this, this is the one actual quote that I highlighted and wanted to, to mention. Even before Jobs comes into the picture, when they're doing their very first short thing just to try it out and show their new techniques, and they didn't get it done in time yeah. for the, the premiere. And he, and he says... Uh, we could complete a rough version of it in time, but portions would be unfinished as, as wireframe images, mock-ups made from polygons of the finished characters instead of fully colored images. The night of our premiere, we watched mortified as these segments appeared on the screen, but something surprising happened. Despite our worries, the majority of the people said they hadn't even noticed that the movie had switched from full color to black and white wireframes. They were so caught up in the emotion of the story that they hadn't noticed its, its flaws. And here's the money quote. This was my first encounter with a phenomenon I would notice again and again throughout my career. For all the care you put into artistry, visual polish frequently doesn't matter if you're getting the story right. And I run across that in theater all the time, too. Some of the most beautiful acting, some of the most beautiful writing I've ever seen has been on a stage with a table and two chairs and two actors speaking words. There are no projections, no fancy set design, no lighting tricks, you know. And yet you go, you know, I go to theater all the time and see gorgeous, gorgeous set designs and, and lighting and projections and all this, all in the service of a story that really needs work. And, you know, and, and I, I just love that. And I, I, I want to take this book and shove it into the hands of every person working in a theater company building in this country because they could use it seriously. Troubles, a lot of them will say, oh, this doesn't apply to me. We're not doing it. We're not technology. It's the pure blah, blah, blah. They'd be like, no, no, no. You've got to drop that <laughs> ego part and read this and accept it. I'm so glad you mentioned ego because that's one thing that comes through um, <clears throat> in this book. I made a note about the, 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 the lack of ego. One of the things I've noticed about really intelligent people that I've run across again and again is they have an they they have a wonderful lack of ego. They're really open to new ideas, regardless of the source. They don't assign a lot of hierarchy to it, um, and and to them, it's more important that ideas that that ideas are tried, tested, deployed effectively, make the world a better and more interesting place. And this this Catmull doesn't come out and say it explicitly, but this ethos permeates the whole book. I think this idea that at Pixar you can take pro, you should take you should take enormous pride in craftsmanship and your work. But ultimately, one of the reasons it succeeds is because they don't, as a culture, they, they don't indulge divas, they don't indulge a cult of personality, they don't indulge ego at all. And you have to learn to be the kind of smart where you don't have a lot of ego bound up with being the smartest person in the room. You have to be the kind of smart where you keep your eyes open and you're receptive to new ideas 
and you are always, always, always open to the possibility that you can learn something from anyone in any way. And they talk about this with everybody has, you know, Pixar's problems are everyone's problems. You don't have to wait for permission to grant responsibility. You don't have to wait for permission to speak. Hierarchy doesn't matter. He, he, he emphasizes, well, you know, sure, the company has hierarchy in some fashion, but they, they want good ideas and good solutions to come from everywhere. And in order to empower people that way, you, you kind of have to aggressively de-emphasize ego as a function of intellect. Well, a lot of people don't respond to criticism well, they, and they take it as a personal affront. And, and creating a culture where everybody is on the same team and they're just trying to make the thing better. And that the idea, the idea that you have is a starting point. And if, it, if there's a better idea that comes out of it, then you didn't lose because your idea wasn't good enough. You're just part of this process. And that is, you know, I took a creative writing course in college and, you know, we all had to critique other people's work. That was the assignment. That's how you got graded. And it's, you know, you try to be gentle, um, you know, but some people you are destroying this thing that they they think it's a personal insult and and i was amazed by the fact that at pixar they really got to the point where everybody felt like they could say something everybody can make uh you know make these uh comments about what they want and uh, what the what the story should be and you know andrew stanton could have had the idea that was sitting there that got torn apart and his response would be you know, great. I'm glad we got something better out of it. And, and that's good enough. In the afterward, where they're talking about Steve Jobs, they talk about one of Steve's greatest strengths was pitching, pitching ideas where, and he says explicitly, pitching is a, is a way of testing material, taking its measure and strengthening it by observing how it plays to an audience. But if the idea doesn't fly, good people who are good at pitching are extremely adept at dropping it and moving on. And it's a rare skill. And he also says Steve Jobs' ego doesn't attach to suggestions he makes, even as he throws his full weight of belief beyond them. He was just there's a certain lack of ego in, in making, in making suggestions and in uh, being open to criticism and, and iterative processes there. So I, I have an insight from my, one of my few forays into corporate culture is, um, you know, I worked at amazon.com in the early days and, and uh, Jeff Bezos is a complete genius. He's also a great manager. He had, um, but uh, without getting too detailed, it was interesting to, read this and have watched how Amazon grew and its missteps and the kind of culture it appears to have created, both from external reports and people I know who worked there at different times, including recently. And uh, uh, the reason you can have open criticism in a place like Pixar is because you're not going to be fired. I mean, we talked about the little earlier, like people worried about job, you know, uh, the Disney culture, people worried about saying the wrong thing and whatever. And when I was at Amazon, one of the reasons I left after six months is I was put in charge a few months in into a huge project. I did my part right. I could not get any of the company had a hundred people when I joined. It had about 400 when I left and I could not get any of the already siloed closed off other divisions to do what I was being directed to do by the CEO of the company, they would not do it. And I realized because I couldn't succeed in that environment, there was no future for me there. And so that was one of the things that contributed to me leaving. I wasn't exactly forced out, but there was no more role. And I feel like the environment at Pixar, if this is any accurate description, which it seems to be based again on like external signs, you know, the, the films they released, the kind of stories they tell and, and the people who come out of it, uh, they, uh, they, you're not fired for being part of helping make things better when you say things are wrong or when you try to break down. Like there's a number of discussions about the production side and the creative side or, or um, this person, you know, they sent somebody off in three days, they figure out how to do this thing that should have taken, you know, six months. They're able to rework that thing at Disney, the, um, 
the model for one of the characters and he had to walk on four feet instead of two. Uh, it's it's you were not he apparently figured a way to not make people worry they would lose their job. It was more sensible for you to speak up than to remain quiet. It was a safer thing to speak up. And that is an extremely crazy thing. I wanted to talk about uh, there's a line in this book that um, that I what was one of my highlights on the Kindle, which was uh, about leaders of companies focused so focused on the competition they were never they never developed any deep introspection about other destructive forces that were at work. And this introspection, I think, is another big part of the Pixar story that they're that they're always concerned about um you know what's going on, the the problems they can't see, the mistakes that are happening, that that success um I, there's a line, John Madden, the uh, former football coach and sports announcer, uh, like to say that winning is a great deodorant. And, you know, <laughs> as long as you're winning, the problems that you've got in your locker room or wherever don't matter because you're winning. But as soon as you stop winning, then you realize everything stinks. And this is this is really what Ed Catmull is getting at here is we can't wait for us to have a failure to discover that we have lots of major problems with what we're doing. We need to, we need to be rooting that stuff out now. And that reminded me of, um, uh, was it, was it a episode or two of hypercritical John, where you talked about a lot of these same points, this, uh, you know, Pixar's take on, uh, you know, though you, you've got to be constantly rooting out these, these things and, and, and that you can't wait for failure to do it. Well, the episode I first mentioned Pixar, I think was about, uh, I forget it was going through a bunch of big companies and saying what we thought was wrong with them. And Pixar was the one I think I saved to the end because it's like, who's going to say something bad about Pixar? This is maybe 2011 or something. Uh, what, what could possibly be wrong with Pixar? Everyone loves Pixar. They make great movies. You know, obviously this is before this book uh, and before I knew pretty much anything about the inner workings. And the one thing I decided that uh, seemed like it was wrong with Pixar is this string of successes without any failures up till that point pointed to a, a situation where they weren't taking enough risks. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And and so it's like, all right, well, it, you know, if every single movie is a success, uh, are any of these movies as big a success as they could be if they were willing to take more risks? And the, the tweet reply I got from Michael Johnson, who is mentioned in this book and works at Pixar, Glenning. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> friend, of the, friend of the show, Michael Johnson, who is mm-hmm. mentioned in the book. In response to to that episode of Hypercritical was a tweet that I, I should have looked it up, but I believe the entire content of the tweet is, we don't release our failures, which uh. was a reasonable answer. And if you look in the book, you can see that right out there. They talk about entire movies that, that they spent millions of dollars on. They just said, you know what? The that, Blue News yeah, movie, yes. That movie's not coming out. Or all the movies where they change directors and and, and stuff like that. Where the, yeah, where the movie is essentially not the same movie they were working on because they change directors they barely mentioned brave and that was when i would have liked well, to they, know a they lot didn't mention cars yeah. too either as well but like, yeah. This, yeah. You know, yeah. and this is before i had seen cars too so i didn't know you know but like and i think a lot of the things in the book if, if you go back and listen to that hypercritical episode you can see a lot of things in the book that directly speak to those particular points and a lot of people have asked me all right so given now that you've read this book do you feel like it answers your question or or you're concerned about what's wrong with pixars and in many respects it's of course illuminating and learning how things happen or whatever but uh in one particular respect i think it 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 still leaves the the question unanswered and i don't think this is necessarily a weakness of pixar but it's just the kind of company they've decided to create is one in which they have a system for making good movies and like the brain trust is a great example. Part of that system is 
at various points in the development of a movie, we are going to have input from all these other great, smart, creative people to help you fix what's wrong with your movie. And we're going to, you know, and we're going to kill it if it looks like it's not going anywhere, or we're going to change the director if it looks like we need to do that, right? All these things are, are options on the table. All this is structured to not allow a failure out into the market, essentially. And that, you would say, is a strength. But, but I think the, the larger point I was getting at in, in the, you know, let me try to find something that's wrong with Pixar, I was comparing it to Miyazaki. When you have one person who is in charge, who seems to have very limited input from anyone else, or sort of like, he does what he wants to do, and there's no brain trust that's going to convince him that this works or this doesn't work, that person's going to put about a bunch of weird movies with weak parts, sometimes total stinker movies, <laughs> but you also may get eventually something that is transcendent that could never have been produced by a system that was subject to that sort of collaborative process. I'm not saying one of those things is better than the other, but it's clear that Pixar is the kind of company that is, it, they've created a, a system, a sort of self-healing system whereby they can make great movies. And I, I still wonder if, does that system preclude making a transcendent movie alongside a bunch of turds like or <laughs> movies movies that are uneven or whatever because like you know i guess it's like the auteur theory versus you know the, the system they've made for making movies yes the director has ultimate control and, and the, their brain trust doesn't have authority to tell them what to do but it's still a process it's it's an engineering approach to creative work which i think is an amazing innovation and a breakthrough in itself and who can argue with the results but it definitely is a different beast than we have one genius who through his lifetime is going to make a bunch of movies. Some of them are going to be great. Some of them are going to be weird. Some of them are going to be awful. And one or two of them are going to be these shining gems. Are you ever going to get those shining gems with this process of Pixar? Or maybe they're just different kind of gems, rubies instead of sapphires. It comes back to the money issue, though, too, that you have to – the fact that they can put so much money in and walk away from it. Most organizations cannot – say we put 10 or 15 million dollars into development into this or whatever it is and we're not going to release it. Well, most movie studios can though. Well, yeah, although they release them, they do different things. They put them onto the direct it's to video. It's one of the dumbest business models out there is the movie because all they need are a few really good hits every year and they can finance a boatload of failure. But they release all the failures and Tixar doesn't release them even is the amazing part. They spike movies that, you know, they, there are lots of things they have behind the scenes and then I'm reminded of something I was actually thinking of um, while I was reading this, a World War Z where the story is they took the last they, – they had finished the movie and they took the last 30 minutes of it and said uh, it's not working. And they went out and reshot the last 30 minutes with a completely different script <laughs> and it was a hit then. So it was like um, – it, it, so I've seen that before but you're right. You, movie studios that can afford to spend millions of dollars in reshoots are the example here. A lot of times you just got to whip it into decent shape and get it out the door and but even with not the big, playing that game. Even with, even with the big movie studios, one of the ongoing problems Hollywood has had is middle – market or experimental films are actually getting squeezed out because right. most studios are now so profoundly risk averse and so intent on the bottom line they're only going to do what they consider to be tentpole blockbusters your franchises your sequels your your licensable characters that's why we have movies based on old tv shows right is because those are at least they've got some pre-marketing but a movie like oh, for example a movie like terms of endearment couldn't get made today Pixar isn't risk averse, though, because they have like that that whole process of like we together as a company are going to work to make sure this director's movie succeeds. We are going to take all our collective experience and inf and try to like to, to collaborate on this movie. And yes, this is the director's movie, but we're going to make sure that we don't put it out anything bad. And those those sort of pressures and inputs applied like, oh, this scene isn't working and maybe this character could be better or whatever. All that stuff makes the movie better. The only thing I question about this process is. Do you end up with a different type of movie, a series of really great movies uh, and maybe a couple of good ones, but no bad ones versus a process where 
an individual doesn't have the benefit of that input and is going to have scenes in the movie that don't work that could have easily been fixed by brain trust meeting and is going to have some movies that in, in their entirety don't work but that is also occasionally going to be able to follow his muse in a direction that would have received feed good intelligent feedback from other people that nevertheless would have been shaving the edges off the movie like and and i keep picking miyazaki because there are definitely weird pointy edges and burrs on those movies and in some respects like that that the the imperfections or the parts that don't work or the things like if you took any Miyazaki movie and throw it into the brain dust, they'd tell you 50 things that are wrong with it. And yet somehow the whole somehow feels different to me than even my favorite Pixar movies do. And I'm not saying that's a bad part of the Pixar process. I'm saying that's that's what they've made. And it is pretty amazing consider that that's what they made because you think about the movie studios who have like the broken version of that machine, which is like, well, we take we take what was good and we sometimes we make it crappier and sometimes we fund stuff that we know is going to be crap or whatever. So Pixar is way above of that level. But that was their example when they took over Disney Disney and said, oh, my God, you know, what can we do here? Can this process save this company? And they felt like, well, and actually it, it, with Wreck-It Ralph and Frozen, I mean, it, it, it did. <laughs> right. Because as, as, as my husband pointed out, the last two Disney animated movies to come out, which were Wreck-It Ralph and Frozen, have have been in his estimation better than the last two Pixar movies that have come out mm-hmm. so he feels like mm. the balance he feels like the balance of storytelling and talent has shifted from uh one to the other Brave is also a Disney movie right Brave is not Pixar no that was Pixar, Brave. Brave it, it's, Pixar. it's the only Pixar movie I really don't like I haven't seen Cars 2 yet so uh, I, I I have seen Cars 2 and it wasn't a terrible movie but it definitely like it, it is definitely. I, I wanted to say something about the the Miyazaki idea because John, I I totally get where you're coming from, and I I think I agree with you that it's less likely that you're going to get. I mean, even when you know, even Brad Brad Bird and Andrew Stanton and these people, they step into that room and they're still going to be part of the process, and they may lead it and they may bring their idea to the table, but it's it, it is part of the story process, and you wonder if something very strange. And idiosyncratic will not happen because the uh, the the process won't allow it. That said, Pixar has done some strange. Th- I mean, Up has a lot of really weird things about it, and the first half hour of Wall-E is a brilliant and weird um, and dialogueless uh, set of images. Right, so it's not as if. So I'm I'm torn because I think you're right, but I feel like there's more give in the process than maybe you might expect. Here's the thing, though, that when when you go into those rooms or when you when you have this collaborative process and these people offer these offer these suggestions, they're right. They're right that this thing isn't working in this subtle way. That this thing could be better in this way, and and maybe you should you need to figure out what the problem is here because this is that that's why that's why the machine works because all those people are right, right? Uh, and it's not like they're making your movie worse. But they are changing it. If it's completely smooth, like if you, it's not completely smooth. They're 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 making your movie better than it was, but they are closing the door on some aspects of the way the movie could have been if it had if everything had gone well and it had got like was. They're basically increasing your batting average. You're going to do much better. They're going to make your movie better, and that's the danger of having the input from all these smart people. Is they are actually right about what? But maybe at that point, if those people weren't there, what would you have done? Would you have made a crappy movie? That's that's very likely. Or made a movie that's worse. But there's also the possibility, depending on who you are, again, the auteur theory that, like, one person's singular vision with uh, minimal input from everyone else because they're, they're a megalomaniac, because they're insane, because there's no one in the company who has anywhere close to their talent. Like, all sorts of unhealthy things that nevertheless produce, like, over Miyazaki's lifetime, he's collaborated, he's worked with other people or whatever, but, like, 
you know, it's his singular vision for, or, or someone else's vision that he guides through to, you know, it's like, it's, he could have benefited from all these, uh, uh, this kind of input and they all would have been right. And, and he would have known they were right and he would have listened to them, but his movies would have been different. I have one, I have a great counterexample to that, which is Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. That was an auteur vision. Nobody told him it's beautiful. Well, you, you also have to be a genius. <laughs> yeah, there's there's the difference between a good auteur and someone who just wants control. Well, that's my question, though, is do the barriers get lowered? Is like everything Catmull is discussing is within the constraints of films where they need uh, who knows how many uh, teraflops of computation power and the most sophisticated people working in the field and constantly developing the cutting edge of software. Again, that echo of Steve Jobs where Jobs is and, – and through Johnny Ives is uh, – Johnny Ives – pushing at the limits of what can be built in computer technology and buying new kinds of lasers or buying every kind of laser that makes a special dot for the MacBooks uh, or special transparent you know, aluminum thing. The same token like Pixar is at the absolute cutting edge of computer graphics science and that is part of how they continue to be able to advance the storytelling. So can you be able to tell stories in simpler ways without requiring cutting edge computer animation, can one person do it? And I think the answer is is probably or a small team. The answer is yes, but I think in the structure of a film of this scale of this type, which reaches reaches a mass audience, they may have perfected that process by not ever believing they perfected it. But I I actually completely agree with you, John, is that you're going to miss out because you're making films, even if they're great on average, are great and and never have stinkers. You're never going to have the imperfections that lead to the um, to that auteur vision that's just totally out of control because no one will – even without being risk adverse, they're not going to do it in that environment. Well, and you know, for instance, it's – it's. I, I think we're all geeky enough that we know who directed what Pixar film long before we read this book. But for most people, they're going to see that and go, oh, that's a Pixar film where they might look and say, oh, that's a Hitchcock film. That's a Tarantino film. That's a, that's a Wes Anderson film. Pixar is the auteur. And, you know, I, that's why it's really interesting that Edgar Wright left Ant-Man, uh, which is, mm. that's going to be a Marvel film. It's It was never going to be an Edgar Wright film. Yeah, and he was trying to make it an Edgar Wright film. You get that sense, right? And Marvel oh, is another glorious. story committee. If that was yeah. the case. Oh, my God. Oh, what would that's have That's why been? we're all bummed out about it. It may be a much better Marvel product at the end of it, but it's not going to have that stamp and that weirdness and that so difference. my question to you and this is a complete derail from the book but not a derail for the incomparable um <laughs> is if we're talking about marvel as as an imprint and so on and so forth how do you explain the um joss whedon influence as it as it meshes into the, the marvel franchise because when you watch the avengers that's definitely that's definitely a, Mar a, a joss whedon property in a lot of ways you know but he's a very natural fit i mean Buffy the Vampire Slayer is right on that template. Well, yeah, so, it's, so a, it's Spider-Man. Since it's basically the same, since it's so, it's just a matter of saying we've trans we've we've, we've given Buffy a Russian backstory and yeah, yeah I, I I think it's and it's Xander a, is know. now a useless archer and <laughs> no, <laughs> no. So so here's the thing: Marvel too has a has a brain trust. Um, uh, you know, a collection of producers and writers that um, they bring in and, and break down their stories with. Uh, the, uh, the, you know, I think the comics do too, but the individual comic writers often have more latitude for something like these movies. They have something very similar. And, and in this case, I think what they wanted to find is somebody who was a kindred spirit who could 
um, you know, put this story together and and be the be the writer and director, but also work within their framework. And um, so I, I think Joss bringing in Joss Whedon to do the Avengers is maybe not that different from um, from bringing in. Now I'm going to blank on his name. Uh, Brad Bird, bringing in Brad Bird to do The Incredibles, right? They, it, he was a known quantity. He had done The Iron Giant. It, it wasn't a huge hit at the box office, but everybody loved it. And he had the idea for The Incredibles, and studios wanted – this is a, something I didn't know. Studios wanted him to bring that idea to them, and he ended up bringing it to Pixar. And so he brought his idea, and he was a known quantity. But when he came, he came into – the the committee and into the group and into the process and and uh that's how i sort of feel like the joss whedon thing is it's kind of like that you're bringing a known quantity into a system somebody who you think is going to be a kindred spirit and sometimes that doesn't work out right like with ant-man it, it you know that they, they that fell apart and when we see with these pixar movies that like brave you know was one of those examples where they fired the director and she left and they brought in another director to to make you know the movie different and get it to be what they wanted it to be Oh well, let's not get. I love Brave, and I own the Blu-ray, so we can't get right, into that. Go ahead, that David, now. or Dan, or whatever your name is. Yeah, I'll, I'll be Dan now. <laughs> okay, Dan, um, go ahead. I think I think Dan would point out that Joss was already part of the Marvel family because he had been writing X-Men comics for several years at that point. He was not just a known quantity to Marvel, but he had actively worked with Marvel. Yeah, but the comics are not the same I, I, as the no, films. No, I'm kind of fascinated so. by I'm kind of fascinated by the parallels between Marvel and Pixar now because if you look, the the, yeah. the, the different directors do have different styles, oh, and one of the things go. that Marvel I think has done possibly a little bit better than DC is it gives writers their own voice in their own head. Yes. Head of steam, as it were. I think Marvel does a great job of saying this. You know, Brian Michael Bendis. This is your book. Like you can always tell when you're reading Brian Michael Bendis. You can always tell when you're reading. Um, Oh God, Runaways! Yeah, I'm losing. Matt Fraction. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, Brian Kavon. Yeah. yeah, Brian Kavon, Matt Fraction. Yeah. You know, anything sure. like that. Um, DC feels a little bit more committee, as it was. I mean, Gail Simone was the glorious exception to that, but you know, it, it does feel a little bit more by committee, whereas Marvel gives gives writers a little bit more space to be writers, and I feel like Pixar kind of does that with their directors. Um, well, I would say, you know, I talk about Brad Bird bringing Incredibles in from the outside. I sort of feel like The Incredibles is um, more. Uh, it just you know, it's it's different from Pixar, and just by a few yes. degrees, it, it feels a little different. It stands it stands apart a little bit. I, I, and I th- I think Brave I think Brave stands apart a little bit too. I know Lisa doesn't like it. I'm I'm a Brave fan as well. But regardless of whether you like it or not, don't you feel like it it stands apart a little bit in the same way that the Incredibles do? Like at a, even at a distance from maybe from things like Wally, which seems so exotic, but really you feel like fits into the Pixar mold. But then you've got, you've got Incredibles, which seems one half step removed. And Brave to me also seems a little bit different. I agree. I think Brave is a very it's a different kind of storytelling and in, in tone and attitude and. And, uh, and and all the rest. It was it was also, I don't know. I don't want to get back to the technology too much, but I I think it does circle around to that. Is I think that's where like Brave for me. I remember seeing when uh, when I think Apple put out a trailer of it or something was up came up on the Apple iTunes section, and they were really you know that hair. Her hair was oh, unbelievable, yeah. and they sort of they led with the hair, and we all knew the story. But the story, the hair is part of the story. The hair is actually an element. It's used in the storytelling, so you can't even that at that level. You're like they bound up this incredible new capability to make hair and bear fur and everything else with the story they told. You know, there's um, 
there's actually a lot of parallels between Brave and Frozen, and I've seen Frozen approximately 65 times because I have a three and a half year old daughter. <laughs> also, I also love Frozen. Yeah. Um, which, I'm, which, I'm which, by the way, if you have you, well, I'm assuming parallels you guys have between Wreck and yeah. Ralph and Toy Story too. Yeah, a little bit. exactly. Yeah. And I'm assuming but, you guys yeah. have all seen the opening sequence movie. of Frozen where they have put where they force the saw through the ice and the texture there is just stunning. Yeah. Oh, my, oh god. my gosh. Like you mm. watch the wa- you watch the light filtering through the ice down into the water and then the saw, saw plunges through and I thought, "Oh my god, I've never seen that 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 mm-hmm. that quality before. That that play of light and liquid they've managed to capture that." But um no, my problem is the brave are more from a storytelling thing, but I agree that The Incredibles is kind of it, I I have always thought it's in a class by itself. Yeah. Um, that said, Ratatouille is my second favorite Pixar movie, and I get the feeling I'm in a distinct minority on that one. Yeah. Oh, I love Ratatouille. Yeah. Oh my god, it's it's, it's my husband's favorite movie for Actually, a lot of reasons, and I, th- I think psychologically, it's really smart. Mm-hmm. Ed Catmull mentions in the book, he says, "Who would make a movie where wet rats are making food?" And I think, <laughs> not me, not me. That is my favorite scene when the rats go in the dishwasher and they dry out, and the steam puffs oh, their fur out. It's delightful. <laughs> Oh, but you know that's a case where they fired the director and brought in Brad Bird, and they changed the they changed the movie the course of the movie. We'll get back to Pixar in a minute, but I want to tell you about one of our sponsors for this episode. It's the good people at ifixit.com. You've heard me talk about them before. Ifixit is the world's free online repair manual for everything. And that's only a slight understatement. I tell you, every time I'm looking for a way to take apart or put back together some piece of technology, I almost invariably end up at ifixit.com's excellent step-by-step repair guides. They've got all the steps and photographs to show you what the heck you're looking at, foolproof instructions to fix all of your stuff. If you've got a broken screen or a broken game console or uh, you know, you, you name it, they've got pictures of it. Lots of Macs, iPhones, iPads, iFixit's got you covered. They have thousands of repair guides for electronics, smartphones, tablets, game consoles. They can hook you up with the parts you'll need to fix it. And everything they sell is tested and guaranteed. And best of all, iFixit designs and manufactures the most trusted repair tools for electronics, including their awesome ProTech toolkit. Here's what's in the ProTech toolkit. 70 different tools to assist you with any mod, malfunction, or misfortune that comes your way. So if you need a set of tools, you keep getting frustrated that you don't have that little bit with the pentalobe screw head so that you can unscrew an iPhone or Mac laptop screw because Apple's got this devilishly weird screw on it. It's in the toolkit. See, so you get the toolkit and then you've got all of the stuff you need to take any, I, I'm betting a lot of incomparable listeners are the person on their block or in their family that everybody comes to with all their computer and technology questions. Help, I need to fix this thing. If you've got the toolkit, you've got the tools to do what you need to do to get those people back in shape. It's a gold standard for electronics work, garage hackers, the CIA and FBI, sure. And these unique tools are used by repair technicians everywhere. So you're using the tools that the pros use. It's got a 54-bit driver kit, Phillip bits, those nasty Penelo bits, Torx bits, Torx security bits, the tri-wing bit, the triangle bit. You're never going to look at something and go, gee, I can't open that. I don't know what that is. And then it's got all those other tools to get into cramped spaces in computers like spudgers, there's the nylon, metal, plastic, all the different ways that you can get in the cracks and pop these things open in order to repair them. So 70 pieces, one-year warranty, and best of all, there are thousands of free iFixit guides you can use with the tools to get those things back in working order. 
You definitely need to check these guys out, both for the toolkit and for their repair guides. Here's what you do. Go to ifixit.com slash incomparable for all the free repair guides you'll ever need. And when you find that perfect part or tool, use the coupon code geeky at checkout and you'll get $10 off your order of $50 or more. That's ifixit.com slash incomparable. And thank you so much to ifixit for sponsoring the incomparable. Well, I want to talk about – it ties into some of this, I think, is uh, the fact that they try so much, right? There's experimentation is baked into their culture because they come from that research background. And I think there's a direct correlation. There's a reason – I mean this book is actually a beautifully told story. Even though it gets dry at points, I think he diverges into things that are sort of businessy or technology. Is, you know, very early on, he talks about how he drew all these you know polygons on his hand so he create a hand – you know, the first animated hand, computer animated hand. And it's an extraordinary bit of the, the he wanted to, you know, hands are the, one of those telling f- things of the body and uh, in paintings in uh, Renaissance time, even today, you pay more to have the hands of the painting when you're p- commissioning a portrait because there's so much more complicated and people can see the detail. And it was like in Toy Story, the faces, the human faces um, looked so terrible compared to the animation of the objects because you see that detail we respond to in a different way. Well, but I think that spirit of experimentation of like the fact that they try that stuff out comes through the whole book and that they, it's, it's baked in. And the, the bit I wanted to talk about in relation to this, I think is the risks and things they try with the short films beforehand, which they did almost as, I mean, he talks about in the book that it wasn't like an intent. We're always going to do it, but that it became a way they thought it would have a purpose and then it turned out not to have the purpose. And they thought they could do something else with it. And they finally said, ah, it's just a way to make a short, really good film that is part of the charm of what we do. And we're just going to do them because people like them, even though we have to spend a few million dollars on them. And I think that was kind of a lovely thing that that's part of what they're doing with the profit is they are literally throwing it away. Maybe it brings more people in because it's part of the package of charm and maybe it increases their profits overall, but that they feel that it's an important part of what they've become now, they do this for the audience, and and maybe it's only for the audience that they spend that money. That's part of what they're, you know, it's the kickback from coming to see a Pixar film. Yeah, I'd always been under the impression getting... that the shorts were a way for them to work out technical troubles, where you could, like, they have that one short where it's the sheep dancing around until he gets cheered. Yeah, and, then he gets... yeah, and he, I thought, sort of, okay, he says, sort of admits they, that it's no, he not says really they didn't. that. Yeah, he anymore. said, we thought they would be, and then they didn't. He's like, well, then we thought it'd be a good way to train directors, but it turns out a five-minute movie is really not a good way to test out someone if they could do a full-length film. So, I mean, I feel like that's part of the discarding is that they that, that he said, you know, we wanted it to be all these things, and it wasn't any of those things, so it's just a thing we do. Well, and well, I, I, think and it's I have to admit that part of it is also – and I, I also think mm-hmm. that part of it – my question is, is how much of this book – I don't doubt that – He's coming from a place of deep emotional and intellectual integrity mm. a lot of the time. But I also have to wonder how much of them is this is also he's crafting the this is also a work of image crafting for Pixar. Because let's face it, if this was a CEO of any other company that is not in the business as as exciting and glamorous and sexy as Pixar is, <laughs> if it were a CEO of somebody who was, say, handling um point-to-point shipping and logistics, would we be as excited about his insights with creativity where he's like, we found this really great way for computers to talk to each other and then we found a way to give our drivers ownership of the process. You know, so there's part of me that thinks this book is also a very good exercise in publicity. And so uh, part of me was reading this also with the thought, how much of this is, is, is officially crafted message and how much of this is, is, is him being, well, candor, you know? Uh, the, I, I can't help but wonder if there's a certain degree of discretion that goes into writing these books as well to, to make sure that the company doesn't take a reputational hit or people who had ideas that didn't pan out don't take reputational hits. 
wouldn't it be horrible if this was all a really well-crafted lie and it's actually a horrible, terrible place to work and everyone's in fear? You have to ask yourself how many different motives are there and and how what what is what is the what is the motivation for everything that goes into it? And I don't doubt that most of the motivation is a hundred percent the genuine desire to share information because it makes the world a better place. Like you can he tell puts this the guy, ring on and yeah, you can tell this guy walks the walk in terms of you know more information is better. Iterative processes are great. Here's how to be mindful. Here's how to observe. Like you can tell this is stuff he genuinely believes. And when he slips into social policy, which I found fascinating, by the way, you can also tell that he believes very strongly in those convictions, too. But I also wonder how much of this is the fact that he is in a position of leadership at a big company. And part of being in a position of leadership at a big company is saying, I am the public face for this company. How do I want this company to be perceived by the rest of the world? I don't think that's cynical, but I think um, part of it is there is an external validation of what he says in that he didn't have to admit any of his failures. And when you read business books that are totally motivational and are rah-rah corporate biography things that are ghostwritten, or even if they're written partly by the CEO or, or, or something like that, they the failures are always brushed off and the successes are emphasized. Strength to strength to strength. We have this little setback. But then that came and the fact that he focuses again and again and again, this, okay, so we had the answer. It was this and I was totally wrong. Like that <laughs> is what makes it, maybe that's an even more double creative technique to get us to believe him where maybe we take him. No, but it's seriously. Like, he wants you to I, believe, Glenn. I wouldn't, but I don't, you know, you could say the fact that he's so candid about what seems to be the failures, even though he's representing this series of successes and how they come out of it and their process is so wonderful even as they break it apart that is actually part of the propaganda part is that he is he he, he brings up the failures so you're well you're the, fa- brought in, yeah, you're the failures closer. the failures also burnish the image in some sense too by saying look we took these failures we made it better um and that is actually a really nifty managerial sleight of hand is because how many other companies do you know that turn their failures into a point of pride or a selling point with you know our product is good because we have been risky and, and and bold enough to fail several times and to learn from that. Like, is that something totally that you true. guys see all, all the time in other companies? Or do, you, or do you see, as Glenn says, a lot of companies that tout their ability to go from strength to strength to strength to strength? See, I didn't get that message from this book. Like, I, I read it as a sort of an anti-business book. Because you're right that other business books, mm-hmm. you know, always say, like, oh, here was a failure and here is our eventual victory. But if taken as a whole... Uh, I, I see it as a much more honest assessment because it's like we tried this and it failed and we came up with this better thing. And then you think, all right, well, that's the story. No, actually, that failed too. And then we tried this. And like, and it's a series of those. And by the end of a series of those, you realize that whatever they end on, whether it's a success or failure, it's merely just another point in the, in the sine wave of success and failure. And that this is not the final success because this will inevitably turn out to be the wrong thing as well later. And if, if you feel like if the book had continued for another 10 years, that everything you had seen as a success would eventually become a failure and a success and a failure and a success. And I think it does a good job of laying that out and that it's not trying to, to construct a narrative or an arc in which the, the failures are, are, are held up, held aloft to see how great we are. First, we had this setback, but then we succeeded. But to establish a pattern, and the pattern is that you're not going to get it right. You're going to think you have it right and you're going to be wrong. And here, let me demonstrate this until you understand that there is this no happy ending to this book. There's no, and that's how we made Pixar a great company that it is today. That's never going to happen in the book. And it's very difficult to get that through because as you start reading the book, you're like, oh, this is the story of Pixar. It was struggling and then it succeeded. And there is a little bit of that. But the I think the undercurrent is don't get fooled by that. Everything that, that we thought we had right, we eventually had wrong. And that's going to be true of everything that we think we have right right now as well. And I think that is the overall message of the book, which is not a message of hope. And is definitely, <laughs> as I say, it's like the anti-business book. It is not an uplifting story and a story mm-hmm. of triumph. You know, that's mixed in there. But like 
the message that I take home from it, and because he tries so hard, he reiterates over and over again to try to convince people to not to not fall into that trap, to not think they have it figured out, and to not think that he has it figured out, and he has to convince himself that he doesn't have it figured out. And that's what I think is so is so refreshing about this book as compared to every other business book I've read, and I've read a lot of them. Well, it's like in, in a typical business book, you'd, you'd hear a story about how Toy Story 2 collapsed, and they redid the whole thing in under eight months, and, you know, and we're never going to do that again. And then the implied message afterward would be, but we totally could do it again. Whereas the implied message I got from this was, there is no way in hell we're ever going to do that again. And we're going to do all these things to make sure that never happens again. Here's how we did that. And we're going to and we're going to do something else that is equally disastrous that we haven't even figured out yet. And actually, if you keep reading the book, you'll see we have a similar, even worse disaster in which we can't even release a movie at all. And we spend millions of dollars on it. So it doesn't even matter that we didn't do that mistake again, because another mistake is waiting. And the whole idea is to build a system that understands this is going to happen. What I really enjoyed about Toy Story 2 was the story about how they they someone entered the wrong command at the, oh. uh, and they del- oh, they deleted Jesus. so much of the movie and the only reason it was saved is because oh, she yeah. had a woman who had just had a baby so she had she's like I, I've been back at the movie on the sly at home so I can work on it I think I might have a copy and, and I thought I, I gasped out loud and I thought let us yeah. hear it for flexible workplaces like that no, here, yeah, yeah, let's, you get let's, the sense that they actually had all, like an IT group like figure out a way to sync the, all the data files to her system oh but, Jesus but, but yeah. here's the thing I want to ask is since we're all parents on this podcast how low in your feet did your heart sink the baby in the car and I was like I read that and I I just I almost fell over I mean I've heard I think as it uh, uh, the Washington Post writer Gene Weingarten doesn't he have a story oh, God, about that, that or horrible story. he wrote something about no, that that's yeah, and you it's, don't read that story it, if you haven't read it yeah. don't read it because it will haunt you for the rest it's, of your life it's, it's just terrible but the, ba- the baby because they were working and, and but car, I mean that's where it's not a business book right as Catmull says we almost killed a baby because we made our people work so our child because we made people work so hard that the engineer was supposed to drop he's been sleepless working for weeks on ends he's supposed to drop his kid off at child care leaves him in the car for three hours in the hot parking lot and it's fine you know and you know Captain was like, oh, the kid was fine like with rehydrate i'm like okay we don't know all the details that's great that's all i need to know but i mean i i what i thought was striking mm-hmm. about that is he bounces from that immediately into and this is why work-life balance is important and this is why we have to give leave to working parents mm-hmm. and he actually yeah. returns to that a couple times in the book he makes the point of saying we're very proud of the couples who've gotten together as a result of pixar we're proud of the kids we now have a daycare center that's affiliated with pixar and what I found interesting, because I did a search for this yesterday out of curiosity, because there are plenty of, you know, explainer type pieces, the six lessons you need to learn from the book and so on and so forth, is I thought, how come nobody has picked up on the fact that this guy who works in a really time intensive industry, because he talks about how it takes 22,000 people weeks to make a movie, but yeah, but this yeah. but this guy is still saying, hey, we need really sane work-life balance and we need paid parental leave for everybody because it makes for a better workforce. And I thought it was really striking that almost everybody's ignored that passage in the book when this has actually been a big national conversation this year about, you know, how the U.S. is one of three countries in the world that doesn't have any work leave whatsoever. And there's plenty of studies that talk about how it's, it's affecting the American workforce and American life. And Catmull just kind of sneaks it on there, and they're saying, "Look, we almost had a crisis happen. This forced us to reassess. This is what I believe." 
well he the company goes through the same exact failure as everyone else like the, the part besides the baby part which is striking in itself as a single uh, as a single you know presumably rare like this doesn't happen oh you know one in a million type thing but also terrible uh, is the statistic that I've, I've had the passage highlighted but i don't have it now but like some huge percentage of their worst for, workforce was suffering from repetitive strain injury one by the third they, yeah one by, third. by the end, end of that yeah. giant crush and so essentially looked at in one perspective it's the elites in this organization which do nothing except push paper all day, push virtual paper, and decide destroyed the health and lives of a huge number of other people as as a way to to achieve the goals of the company. And that is the typical cap, evil capitalist, like, I don't care about the workers, we need to have goals, we're going to get it done, we're the elites, yay, we celebrate it. And their reaction to it is what differentiates them. So that, that happens in companies all the time. Workers are exploited, managers need to get something done, they lean on the people below them. They wreck people's lives, you know, their personal lives, their health, everything about them. The difference is their reaction to that wasn't, well, I guess the system worked. And, you know, Catmull even points out there's companies, I think he was probably talking about EA. He didn't name any names. But, like, there's 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 companies that say that they just have, like, you know, 15% turnover because they say, well, you get great work if you hire these energetic people out of school and then grind them into dust. And when they <laughs> burn out, you just get another new crop of people. And, and from their perspective, like, that's a winning strategy. But what Catmull says is, that that seem that actually on paper and in reality that is an effective strategy but he says it's immoral and he so he has a moral objection to what is an effective strategy you know if you just if you're just like machiavellian or like you know i'm a power broker i'm jack welch i'm gonna get things done i'm you know business book or whatever he says yes that is effective and we actually did that but we said no to it not because it didn't get the job done because hey look we made a great movie out of it but because it's immoral and it's like such a simple thing you said. He just came out and said it. In, ca- in case you're missing this, people, we're not going to do this to our workers because it's immoral. The games industry, I mean, this is outside of my realm because I'm not a serious gamer, as you know. But the games industry, I mean, you know, Pixar is, and, and the Disney division are, are related mostly to the film industry. But they work sort of fundamentally differently than the rest of the film industry that's not making animation. What they're closer to is the games industry where they're doing stuff that is telling a story and doing animation. And it's, it's a different software, you know, it's software driven and they're always pushing on the edge and blah, blah, blah. And you – and. I've never heard of all these AAA game companies. Every story I hear, every time I interview someone who's in the games industry or read the articles, they are grinding machines, as you say, like Electronic Arts, is lawsuits about it, and marriages break up, and everything's you know horrible. But they're the closest comp- competition. It seems not competition, but they're the closest analog, and they produce. They put huge amounts of money in, and they produce sometimes games that make a bazillion dollars, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, and sometimes they release stuff that's utter crap and fails. Like a movie studio. I mentioned before the engineering approach to creative work and how Pixar is uh, like, am I the only engineer on this on this podcast? I, pre- I, I fake being an engineer. So, yes, you are. Well, I mean, like if, if you are if you are a computer programmer or in computer science or in any of these rooms, and probably also if you're a scientist, although I can't relate to that, uh, you you can relate to Ed Catmull. And this book reads like uh so, something that you can recognize, like a, a lot of the personality traits that come through in Ed Catmull in this book and in the things that I've seen him in are personality traits that I share uh, that are usually a liability in normal life. And the refreshing thing about reading this book is I think engineers and, and programmers and scientists will recognize themsel- themselves and their personality traits in Ed Catmull and will will find it, as I did, exciting and refreshing to see that those those traits are, can be both useful and successful in real life because in most of our lives they have not been <laughs> useful or successful to that degree and part of that is the the, the engineering approach of saying 
uh, I'm going to analyze the situation. I'm going to figure out what needs to be done. And I'm, you know, you mentioned the egolessness before. That's a scientific type approach. Well, who cares who idea, whose idea it was? You test the idea. If it doesn't work, uh, you move on. And early, very early in the conversation, I think Lisa talked about uh, Catmull's objection to the idea that you're discovering a movie and chipping away and the movie is hiding underneath the bottom. And Catmull, in typical programmer, engineering, scientist fashion, is saying, that's not the case at all, actually. Like, it's not there underneath. You're actually making it, whatever. But then this is the whole thing about this type this engineering approach is all right so you can analyze and say that's a stupid analogy it's not actually how things are done uh it's not accurate but ed catmull accepts that this analogy helps people to produce good work and then he goes on in, in one chapter in the book to detail all the other things which are also not accurate that people tell themselves to help them do good work all people's different analogies i think of it like climbing a mountain or i think of it from running one hill to the other and all these different things which are not really the process as far as that catmull is concerned but part of the, the process of having an engineer's approach to creative work is to say it doesn't matter that that's not accurate because in the end you're trying to just get good work and if it helps some people get good work you have to put that as a tool in your tool chest and say this is one way you know it to not get hang up on the first degree order like oh that's actually not not the correct approach and we can test that and see really here are all the reasons why that is not actually how we make movies but if thinking that helps you make a good movie that needs to be a tool in my tool chest to say go ahead person who doesn't understand the reality of the world use this model mental model to help you do great work and that's that's the genius of ed catmull and of this book is that it is it never gives up on the idea that uh Thinking about things, uh, testing them, and evaluating the results is the path to success in all endeavors, and you never stop doing that, even if you've determined that, you know, for example, someone's analogy is inapt and inaccurate. That analogy may still have a use. You may just need to test it differently. It did really bug me that he kept going back to the, there's not a there's not a sculpture in that block of marble. Well, that's that's part of the personality traits of, like, it's got to annoy him because it's not accurate, but, like, but he is, but he was not blinded by that. He saw that it helps these people. It, here, look at, and that's why, that's why I love that whole chapter. Look at all these things these people think that help them get their work done. All of which are ridiculous and foolish, for, you know, we all know here, but, but, but it helps them get their work done. And that's why I think these are important tools. Yeah, it's a homeopathic school of uh, filmmaking. It's like, uh, I don't believe in it, but it still works. Well, But it's self-hacking. Like These individuals are sort of hacking their own brains in a way that works for them. It, the way yeah. that doesn't work with Ed Catmull and maybe isn't accurate reflection of, of reality, that's the whole thing about people management. Because that's what he goes into. My new challenge will be figuring out how to manage people and make this company. And that is an amazing challenge, as anyone who's a parent knows. Trying to figure out what the heck is going on in the mind of someone else and herd them to be successful, even when they are so unlike you and so unknowable. Uh, and that is that is like the ultimate challenge after he's, you know, done all the, the scientific stuff and the, the engineering stuff, which he sort of glossed over. Yeah, I invented texture mapping, whatever, big whoop. That was when I was a kid. Anyway, I'm trying <laughs> to manage these people and they're all crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing I love is how casual he is about the fact that, yeah, I only I only revolutionize 3D rendering. Big deal. I mean, it's almost like he didn't even want to talk about it. He's like, that's technical and it's boring. You wouldn't be interested in it or whatever. Like, I mean, obviously, I'm reading I'm like, no, please write an entire other book about that. He was, it's probably the right call because most yeah. people, eyes I was like, I was like, was like you, that, know you know what? I'm kidding. You know what? I'm kidding. You know what? I'm kidding. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can, we, can we talk about that one second? I had that pulled out in the book, too. The fact that the program he went to at the University of Utah was ridiculous. It was, who came in? It was Alan Kay. It was, um, who was the, one of the people instrumental to it was Warnock. John, uh, War Warnock of Adobe. John Warnock. And uh, wait, who's the other one? You just, Alan, in uh, Jim Clark. I'm sorry, you said Jim Clark. So Jim Clark. Oh, Jim Clark, yeah. yeah. And you're like, yeah, Jim Clark, John Warnock, Alan Kay. You're like, these are the, and Ed Catmull, these are the foundational people of the, of like 
every aspect around graphics, 2D and 3D graphics, the representation of it, the computers, like this, but without those four people, you could argue with them as impetus because they're all sort of business people, even though they were scientists, computer scientists. I mean, Warnock certainly was, and Kay was at some level. I mean, he was practical in a certain way. But without those four people, um, I think we, it, the same stuff they that happened might have happened. It would have been 10 or 15 years later is what it feels like. Well, what Catmull would say is that the same stuff would have happened in the same time frame. It just would have been different people because a large part of success that you attribute to the uh, the magic of the individual is actually attributable to luck. And it's a mistake to believe that that only could have been done by those people. I generally believe that, but with certain individuals, they catalyze things in a way that you could see how there was nothing else going on in the field. The guy they're studying with, I mean, Sutherland, uh, uh, Ivan Sutherland, um, was a genius as well. I mean, it's just it was a crazy group of people and a crazy group of things that came out of it. And I believe it would have been replicated, but not as quickly. So well, I mean, that, that, that point does bring up in the book, again, being the anti-business book. The, the, the typical business book is, I have been massively successful, therefore everything I've done in my life must have led to the success, ipso facto, and now I'm going to describe what I have for breakfast because it is an integral part of my success, <laughs> right? And Catmull does not believe his the hype, does not believe his own hype, does not believe, any, like, is so aware that just because that's what happened doesn't mean that's the only way this could have happened and maybe entirely unrelated and, in fact, with the whole success side problem things, it may have been stopping you, you know. I don't may think have been he's going to die. Worse. I think he's just going to dissolve into a pure cloud of egoless, of egoless discovery, you know. He'll, he'll be like some benign <laughs> cognitive entity that hovers over like a, innovative Like a Star Trek alien. It, yeah. if, you can detect, if you can detect any of his ego in the book, I would say the place I detected is he never did get to the part where he describes... Uh, the failures of the movies that Pixar has released. What aspects of Cars ah. 2 were, were not satisfactory? What aspects of any, you know what I mean? And he never goes for that one. And it could be that he doesn't see any failures there. But I was waiting for the moment where he discusses, we release this one. It's not as good as some of the other ones released. And here's why. And here's what happened. Well, I think that there's a protection uh, throughout. You see it. He won't name the names of the directors who get fired. Right. I think there's a, pr- a level of protection where there are things that are not discussed able to be discussed and i suspect that that is part of it is for him to come and then be seen criticizing specific things in his company's released movies is not something he's willing to do well if he's responsible he's willing to criticize himself but like the can the candor that he talks about has to exist within pixar the candor doesn't have doesn't have to exist external to pixar so it is a balancing act you know i mean he he edges up to it he edges up to it when he's talking about up when he says, you know, after they went through several variations and they had an explanation as to why Charles Muntz was so, you know, he was, I mean, he was a, a grown man when Carl was a child. And yet they're roughly the same age later. Yeah. And yet, you know, he's still active. And 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 he says, uh, but, you know. Uh, nobody noticed. Up, nobody noticed. Anyone, if they noticed, they didn't care. I noticed. And, and I have to say, that's the only thing in the book where I went, no, I noticed. And we came up with an alternate reason why that worked. And, uh, you know, the kids thought, hey, that's actually better than the movie because it, you know, and it wouldn't have taken that much to do. But they noticed that logic problem. And the reason they noticed was because that was the first Pixar movie they had seen where there was a logic problem. As I think was it did Lewis Carroll actually say it or is it imputed to him that it's like nonsense has to be rigidly internally consistent or you notice it? Yeah. And there's not nonsense, but it's like when you tell a story, the universe you create, if it's not originally internally consistent, no matter how fantastic it is, you will notice the the things that stand out. You know, Lewis Carroll's granddaughter once sold uh, Glenn a used car. 
It's not, no, it's not true. It's, <laughs> and its engine made the sounds tweedledee, tweedledum, tweedledee, tweedledum. That's my dream glenning right there. Dream glenning. <laughs> dream glenning. Oh, dear God. Dream glenning. Anything we should uh, we should talk about before before I wrap it up? I just wanted this is my last uh, this is the last call. <laughs> afterward, the afterward, I cried like a baby reading that chapter. I was not expecting it. I started reading it thinking, oh well, that's good. He has a rem- remembrance of him of Steve Jobs. Yeah, oh, Steve Jobs. I was ball. I was it was reading it at eleven forty five at night. I was about to go to bed and was going to put the book down. I read the whole last part and was just had to use up you know half a box of Kleenex. I expected it to be one of those things where somebody somebody says, "Come on, you got to talk about Steve Jobs." He's like, "All right, I'll dash something off there just to just to give you one." <laughs> and instead, it's like a man who knew this guy for a long time and is and is infuriated about how terribly and inaccurately he is portrayed in the media and he's going to get his shots in he's going to say look this is the guy i knew and these are all the ways that he is um he's mischaracterized and you don't know the guy that i knew and let me tell you about him and it's a it's a you know it's a real it's fascinating in that way and this guy's got all the credibility in terms of who steve jobs was cuz he worked with him for so long i think i think he established that by the earlier in the book because he talks some like even without the afterword i think the way he established it to me because i've read a lot about steve jobs and i've also been angry about books that i felt like I yeah. characterized him <laughs> and like because i mean it's so easy to, to harp on the bad stuff and the bad stuff is true and ed catmull believes that but like uh, acknowledges that rather but the the bit that was the most convincing is the earlier part where he talks about how Steve Jobs interacted with Pixar and that he stuck with it and kept dumping his money into it for so long. So many people say, like, you know, like, I believe in, you know, these people and passion is important and blah, blah, blah. But the second a, co- a company like that didn't look like they had good prospects, they get out because that's how you get rich. You don't get rich by being stupid, by making stupid investments. And Steve Jobs seemed like was just going to, you know, I mean, he, he was trying to find ways out and he was trying to sell them as well, but he stuck it out for as long as he did because he recognized the passion. And that is something that people usually only talk about. Like, oh, I believe in passionate people and I invest in companies with passionate whatever. But so many, in my experience, so many of those people who are successful in business are successful because they don't do that. Because they they put, you know, money first and practical concerns first. And I don't care how passionate you are. I'm getting out when it looks like I'm going to be losing some money. Whereas Steve Jobs was just willing to sit there plunking millions and plunking and try to sell, but then like be insulted by Microsoft's lowball <laughs> offer and say, you know what? No, this would have made my money back, but screw you. Well, I'm going to stick with this company. <laughs> and that speaks to his character more than any other description or whatever is that, you know, he, he really put his money where his mouth is. He really did things that don't make sense from a business perspective. And that, that is the most revealing of his character far above all his little things in boardrooms of, you know, being rude to people or firing people in elevators or all that other stuff. It shows what did, what did he do with his life? And Pixar is one of the things he did with his life that I don't think almost anyone else would have done. I wanted to the, – the other thing I highlighted in here, which is uh, applicable to portrayals of Steve Jobs, of Pixar, and of Apple, and pretty much anything else. But I underlined it because it's so perfectly stated, which is – Journalists tend to look for patterns that can be explained in a relatively small number of words. If you haven't done the work of teasing apart what is random and what you have intentionally set in motion, you will be overly influenced by the analysis of outside observers, which is often oversimplified. This is partially this is um, don't believe your own PR. And partially this is um, lots of people uh, who write about companies are trying to find the simplest 
um, fewest number of words to explain anything. It's like Occam's razor gone horribly wrong. <laughs> it is the simplest <laughs> explanation uh, is is probably the right one, except in these cases, it's not. So the I, simplifiedest I, I like explanation. Well, he, simplified he, pushes, he pushes back against simple aphorisms and simple explanations all the way along, though. I mean, that's one of his his big things is is never doubt the role that random chance plays in your life and never underestimate how powerfully complex and unknowable the systems around you are either. And and like John says, that's not exactly a happy ending. It's it's basically surrender, surrender to the chaos, find a way to surf it. And that's a scary message to send. I think it's great that he's sending it and it's a message that resonates at me in this time of my life. But you know, if people are reading this book too, I need to become a leader and the message is surrender to chaos. That's wait, what? Well that's that's what John said. It's the anti, it's the anti business book, although in a way it's, I mean first off, it, it it I found it I mean, I kept I I noted lots of things that I took away from this as as inspirational business book kind of material. It's just a different kind of book with a different kind of lesson. And uh, you know, I, but then again, I work with um, I work with creative people. I, I you know I work with writers and editors, and and uh, it might be very different if you were working with bankers or something like that see i i think this is all applicable like he does like that's why i feel bad that the, the title is creativity inc because it's he's like well mm. what if i don't work in a creative field should i read this like the the elements that he describes in this book are in any big company any big company anywhere whether you're making hamburgers or doorknobs or or jet planes or software or anything like these are just people ailments and He's coming at it from that particular angle, but people are people everywhere. And all these things that he describes about, you know, being more candor in the hallway than there are in the thing in the in the boardroom meetings and, you know, uh, not stigmatizing failure. And uh, like you said, not attributing your success to things that seem simple and all like that. They happen everywhere. And Ed Catmull, I think, from the sort of engineering scientific perspective, feels like he has a clear image of what's really going on. And most people don't want to know what's like, they don't want to see the matrix. They want to take whichever the pill is the one that I forget that, that makes you not understand that you're in a, in a goo pod somewhere. Uh, and he's here with an, with an unfriendly, unwelcome message that, like you said about, about the randomness and the chaos. And you know, like that is not a welcoming message. And he has to repeat himself so many times because I feel like it is a message that people will resist. They want the pat answer. They want. They say, "I recognize that ailment in my company, and tell me how the person I like, I don't like in this situation, is wrong, and tell me how I'm right, and tell me how to fix it." And he's not going to do any of those things. He's going to say the situation is bad. Person you hate isn't the, the the villain here. You're all the villain, and there's no easy way to fix it. And here's what we tried, and here's why it failed. And like, it's 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 a a clear eyed look into into the chaos of life, uh, and I think it's something that. If you don't share that mindset, people will find unattractive and not not compelling. And to, to varying degrees, you can get inspiration out of it. But like, it's almost like if you feel inspired by a section of this book, the the book is not you know the book would grab you by your lapels and shake you. And say no, stop being inspired. Think <laughs> you're in the jaws of death and you don't even know it. No, I, I have this thing that I learned in uh, I think it's art history class. I've carried with it me for decades is the uh, Egyptian sculpture, the pharaohs and, and wives and so forth, we would be portrayed as staring directly into the sun. And I've thought of that as an important concept that sometimes you have to look at truth and it hurts you, it may even damage you, but you have to stare directly into the sun because if you look away, you're not actually seeing the true image. We get into the, you know, the cave, the Plato's caves and so forth. But, but it is that, is that uh, he is, he finds himself looking away and goes like, oh, 
I looked away for too long. I need to look. Oh man, that's what was going on there. And that's where the truth comes from. He does it again and again. It's, it's, you need to see the chair by looking at the negative space. <laughs> Very nice. The space between the notes. That's right. Brought us all the way back around. Hey, that's what I do. I, I was going to say in, in the theater social media world, a couple of months ago, uh, someone found the, the list of story rules at Pixar. And that just, you know, spread like wildfire and Facebook and Twitter and everyone had, you know, and everyone had like the poster version of it. They had the link to the story version of it. And, you know, and I read it and I thought, well, okay, yeah, I believe all those things. That's great. And I really hope that, you know, whether, whether on the management side or on the creative side, if you work in a creative industry, read this book because it's just as useful as those story rules and it's it's just as many things that you can you can follow or you can ignore or you can adjust and adapt and you know i'm kind of afraid that people aren't going to read it because they're going to think oh it's a business book or oh it's not a nice list like a buzzfeed article because you know 25 story rules is a lot faster than 300 something pages but i i just almost every every chapter in this i was just going yes in my head the artistic aspects of it is another place where it's like a, a fairly frightening echo of my personal experience that I'd spent my, my youth doing, a, you know, a, a lot of, uh, you know, fine arts type stuff. And Ed Catmull was into that as well. And he describes having the Pixar employees uh, take an art class and the things he described, like it's kind of the same thing as seeing the reality situation, doing, doing the negative space and drawing your shoe upside down and everything. All of that is an exercise to make people who aren't uh, experienced artists uh, draw what's actually there and not what they think. Don't draw your mind's conception of a shoe. Draw the actual shoe that's there, uh, which is a great analogy and is a great experience because in business so much, people will people will draw their conception of a shoe. I know what a chair looks like. I'm going to draw a chair. I know how a business runs. I'm going to run a business. And they will just not see the actual chair that's there, the actual shoe that's there. And the worst part is like after they've done it, after you've drawn the shoe and you ask somebody, have you accurately depicted the shoe that was in front of you? Does that look like that shoe? You're like, yeah, this is a shoe. That's a shoe. They're both shoes. Shoe, shoe, shoe. I did it. And but like, why is your why is this picture not good? Why is this not realistic? Why is that? Well, I don't know. It's it's different in some way, but I can't really tell. And it's the same thing in business. It's like, uh, you know, I I know how to run a business. This is the business. They're they're running the business they think is there, not the business that's actually there. So it's it's a great analogy. But I fear like so much when I read this book, I see him reiterating the same points over and over. I fear that it will bounce off people. That if they haven't actually drawn, tried to draw a shoe, they won't understand the point that's being made. That, that, that if they run a business, they're, they're going to be running the business they think they see and not the one that's really there. That's the irony of the reality distortion field that he mentions in the afterward, too. Afterward, he says, like, you know, people talked about Steve Jobs having this reality distortion field, and he didn't see it the same way. You know, it was Steve painting a vision of reality that he, that he could pull into uh, existence. And, and it's funny that I think he saw he himself, Ed, Ed Catmull himself, and the way he viewed Steve Jobs is that they did that, you know, they weren't distorting reality. They actually, because they made this stuff happen, it doesn't matter uh, what you think they're thinking. They did it. Right. Right. All right. We have to go. We have run out of time for this episode. But I would like to thank my guests for joining me to talk a little bit about a lot of stuff revolving around Pixar and Creativity, Inc. David Lore. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for getting me to read it anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Not that I wasn't going to, but... Glenn Fleischman, thank you for being back. It's been a, been a while. 
I, I read a book. Thank you. I, yeah, you used to read lots of books. <laughs> I know. What happened? The Hugos uh, broke him. Yeah. That's possible. Well, Mira. Lisa Schmeiser, thank you for being here. I like how you laugh resignedly when you say my name. <laughs> oh, you, I, <laughs> well, you were here. You were you also present. No, you were, you were more organized. This would have uh, the only way you could have contributed more is if I just let you host and gone yeah. inside and and uh, watch some TV. Yeah. Mm-hmm. John Syracuse, thanks for being here. Success hides problems, Jason. Yeah, it's true. It's true. But first, you have to have success. Uh, anyway, that's it for now, and thanks for listening to The Incomparable. We'll see you next time. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Scott McNulty. His one-man mission, to watch every episode of Star Trek... The original series, The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and all the feature films, but not the animated series, randomly, with a guest, on a podcast. It's called Random Trek. First of all, some of the actors are better than yeah, others. I was going to say, this is my favorite part of this episode, is watching the actors just freeze and try to remain as still as possible. Some. I will say that DeForest Kelly and Leonard Nimoy do a pretty good job. I, uh, I think yes, and I like how Shatner has some trouble because his eyes keep moving. He's like, uh. <laughs> he can't stop acting. Find it on iTunes or at theincomparable.com/slash/random track.